So how am I doing? Remember Ed Koch, right? Wherever he went, he would turn to his supporters or the people who gathered and say, so how am I doing? To understand Jesus' question to his disciples, perhaps not so different from who do people say I am in our colloquial version of it 2,000 years later, how am I doing? We need to take a closer look at Matthew for a minute or two. To glimpse what was going on, we have to enter into the mind of the author as best we can. And in this pursuit, we also remind ourselves that the writers of the Gospels, once again, they were not historians. However, they were greatly affected by the history of their time. And that's a difference. And it was those conditions of the times in which they lived that created the conditions under which they framed their message so that others could understand what they were saying. That's why they spoke in the language of the day so others could understand what they were saying. And the language of their day, guess what? It's not exactly the language of our day. So we have to dig. They wrote for the conditions of their times, not ours. So understanding the author, understanding the conditions, are critical to understanding the language of the heart. The language of the heart and its message. A language that then and now, even if framed differently, is the same language. It's the language of love. And hearts understand the language of love if they're given a chance. Now, historically speaking, Matthew wrote in the time period that followed the fall of Jerusalem. This was a time after the first Jewish revolt. It is an historic event that those who track such things say the fall of the temple which marked the end of the revolt in common era 70, in the year 70, took place on August 29th in the year 70. How's that? Well, what's that? Your birthday. I think we should raise the temple for Carrie's birthday. There it was. That will be quite a time, and it was quite a time back then, too. I mean, the Romans had just been fought back by the Jews. The Jews had pushed them back. They had taken over Jerusalem. They had their independence, and they had their power. But then along came the Roman pushback and the fall of Jerusalem. And three years later, in the common era, in the year 73, Masada would fall as well. The warring, the suffering, the destruction following Jerusalem's brief period of independence and power would still be fresh in the minds of all of the people who were listening to Matthew. Uh, they were living through this. It was a compressed time period for sure. Jesus had been crucified somewhere around 30, 33, 32. The rise of Jewish independence and power happened shortly thereafter. And then the loss of that position followed. And then the punctuation of that loss with the destruction of the temple and the fall of Masada. People of the time would have had a knowledge of all of these things. And it was a time of undeniable chaos, contradictions, 
changes. It must have been pretty disorienting to be a Jew living in this period of time trying to understand what in God's name was happening. And it is within that time and within that feeling of the people that Matthew wrote. Now, the Gospel of Matthew, we've spoken about this, is most concerned with where the followers of Jesus would find their place within Judaism. He wasn't saying, no more Judaism, no more Jewish faith. He, was saying, he wasn't saying, you're now Christians. In fact, the word Christians wouldn't even be used for another 50 years. Sometime around the year 125 in Antioch by Paul. This was the Jewish community that was still trying to find its place. And it was split. There were many variations. One of them was the group that wanted to follow the basic literal sense of what the traditions were, the Torah was, and they didn't quite see Jesus as this Messiah that everybody was talking about. And then here was Matthew, this Greek Jew Matthew, writing along with the rest of the New Testament for the most part in Greek and taking people down the path to Jesus being the answer as the Messiah in these times of confusion and distress with the influence of the Greek and the, Hellen the Hellenic period as well. So there was a conflict going on even within the Jewish community about who to follow, how to follow, where to go. But in writing his gospel, Matthew was trying to tell a story he was trying to weave together the Jewish identity, the place of Jesus within that identity, and he traced Jesus not just back to David, but all the way back to Abraham. If you remember, Matthew's Gospel starts with, what does Matthew's Gospel start with? The, the long genealogy, lineology of Jesus going all the way back to Abraham. It's the only Gospel that starts that way. He is trying to position Jesus squarely for the Jews in the heart of their tradition as the Messiah upon whom they can rely and with whom they can face the challenges of the time. But even with the dialectic that he was composing, even with this conversation that he was trying to create between the groups, and trying to help them see how this Nazarene was more than just someone who was crucified. Even with that, there were these huge questions. Among them, who are we? Matthew speaking to the Jews. Who are we in relationship to Jesus? Who are we in relationship to being a Jew? Who are we in relationship to all of these times? Who are we? Now, I talked a little bit about the, the celebration we had here last night, the great celebration in this sanctuary that, that you see around you and, and, the, and the terrific wedding. And there are two friends of mine, John and John, that we married. And with the passage of the New York State Marriage Equality Act, and when I said that by the authority of the New York State, a big who went up. Everybody cheered. It was great. It was just great. 
But with the passage of that act, same gender loving couples can be married just as other gender loving couples, whatever the definition of those genders are. But still within our church, there's a cautionary tale. There is a part of our constitution in the church that says marriage is defined as being between a man and a woman. And then there is another part in our constitution that says it is the pastor's responsibility to provide pastoral care to all. So there are inherent contradictions in these things. So the question becomes, who do we say we are here? Preceded by, who do we say Jesus was and is? And then, how does that translate into the actions that we take? And that's what I was getting to before. After I would go through with the kids and this thing about, who are you? And they, they'd say that what country they were from. They would say what sport they played. They would say everything. I said, who you are is the person that will make a decision to do something based on what you believe when there are no rules or when you are in conflict with those rules. That is who we are. That deep sense of belief, that deep sense of a center that says no or yes or okay. So the session of this church, now called a council, with our new form of government, made it clear to me, and has made it clear before, that we are committed to welcoming and extending our pastoral care and the opportunities for membership and leadership to all. That means we ordain qualified candidates, and we marry those who we would marry based on their preparedness for marriage, just like we do in all situations. All couples, all loving couples, are treated the same. That's a language of the heart. That's the first language, I think. So in other words, for us, our understanding of Jesus and our faith today accepts the risks of what some might consider as being wrong. Still, we think, in speaking for us as a group, I think it's fair to say this, that if Jesus were here today, and we asked him, or he asked us, who do you say I am? That in part, our answer might be, we say that you're the one that calls us to marry loving couples you have brought here to marry regardless of their gender. That's what we believe. That's what we believe Jesus would say. That's what believe we is in the gospel. And we act upon that. And people will disagree with it. And agree with it. And roll their eyes. And wink. And feel a warmth in their hearts because someone accepts them. Or wonder what in the hell is going on over there at that place at 351 East 74th Street. And we expect that after Jesus gave us that reply and we replied to him, that he would stand here and say, so, what are you waiting for? If you think about it, it's really reminiscent of some of the debates that Jesus had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Remember some of those exchanges? You can see him. If you think about that landscape against which those Gospels were written and the words that were used, 
And you think of the way that Jesus responded. I won't huff and puff again, turning over the tables, but transfer that to other conditions where he spoke in heated exchanges. You can hear his voice in some of the exchanges we're having today because the voice comes from the heart. And of course there's more. Our identity of Jesus in the life of this congregation extends from here out there into the world. It's not just in this room. Jackie and Jerry and Pat and Dell and Lily and James and Essie and everyone here. We're here. But when we all leave here, we go somewhere. And what we come here for, hopefully, is some connection to the things we talk about, to the kindness, the presence, the love, the strength, the courage, the faith we find in one another, the exchange that we rely upon one another for help when we're going through things or offering help to others. And then we take that from here, a place we know is safe sanctuary, where we join at the same table. We try to get to know people. There's a good chance none of us would ordinarily mix if we were walking down the street. I don't know. Maybe some of us would. Maybe some of us wouldn't. It doesn't matter. At this table, we sit. And out of that, we gain something. And by doing this in worship, we gain encouragement to continue in our faith, to take the risks, to ask the question, who are we in relation to God of our understanding, and how do we practice that? And we go out into a world of hard realities, not much different. Well, a little bit different. But maybe not, compared to the times in Jerusalem that I started talking about in the beginning. We have conflict. We have confrontation. We have war. We're in a world filled with upheaval. We're seeking answers. And we're holding on to our faith and pursuing what that means in the messy way of discernment as we try and go forward holding on to that. We are in the middle of these things. And in one of the things that we are in the middle of is that we've been talking about this. In just a few short weeks, we will be intentionally engaged in this country and around the world and here in our remembrance of 9-11, 10 years ago. How fresh is that in our minds? How much effort did it take to travel from today to 10 years ago? Probably not much. In an instant, we all knew where we were on that day. How much havoc, confusion, has that attack caused on our soil? The destruction of the towers, repercussions around the world enormous and we are living in the shadow of that attack on our soil it is not over it has never been over we've been distracted from it and that's good my mom watched on TV I called home that weekend she could not tear herself away from the TV watching the towers go down over and over and over. I said, Mom, shut off the TV. You don't need to see it a hundred times. Once is enough. Twice if you have to. But you have to move on. And we have. 
but it's never been over. So who has Jesus become for us in this time as a result of this act of violence? How have we been challenged to believe and others challenged in their own faith to continue to believe following terror what it is that God has for us in store? What does our faith mean? What are we supposed to do? There's another place these ideological challenges. For example, where is Jesus and our faith in the war going on in this country between the 4% of the population that has 90% of the wealth? The middle class that is being squeezed and the poor that seem invisible and are charged as being victimless, you're not a victim, by those hoping to crush the size of government and to crush or ignore anything that gets in their way of doing that. At the reception for my friends last night, the conversation at the table at which I sat ended up in a place with the question of where would we like to see things 50 years from now? We were talking about how much has changed over time and, and these topics were all there. And I think, I clearly believe and think the vision is important and it's a topic for another day to have a vision to have something you hold on to and it, that leads you and guides you. But as part of the conversation, what emerged was clearly what we all know. It is the importance of being present and seeing value and deep meaning in even the simplest acts of kindness, care, and compassion. And the deepest of meaning for these acts and practices is because even in the simplest of ways or the grandest when we have a chance to make a splash in all these ways these are the answers to those questions who we are what do we believe in who do we say Jesus is in our lives and who we say Jesus is are informed by the actions we take as much as they come from the belief that we have. It's one. It's the heart. It's the language of the heart. It's the hard stuff of stopping and doing even the simplest of things to help. Now, I believe that compassion is always an act of kindness. Always. Compassion is always an act. It is always an act in some way of kindness. When we draw upon our faith and our belief traditions, whatever they may be, when we practice, practice those simplest of care within the scope of our abilities to do so, we are answering the question that Jesus posed to his disciples. We are setting the priorities straight, excuse my expression, straight about what we will do and are willing to risk doing in answering the question, who do we say Jesus is? Who do we say God is? We are establishing once more in an active way the language of the heart that can rise above the hurt and the pain of their times and our times. And even within the hurt and the pain, we can continue to be faithful we don't have to watch the towers come down a hundred times. We're not going to forget. 
we can feel the hurt and the pain, and we can still move toward kindness, caring, compassion toward others. When we know that, when we really get that, that when I open the door for Emmanuel, that that's an act of kindness, that that's a reflection of what I believe, whether I think about it or not. When we realize these things in the quietest of hearts and affirm the conversation with God that says, thank you for letting me open the door for somebody. Thank you for slowing me down enough so that I actually saw the person going through the door. Then we too, in some way, will most likely hear the words that Jesus said to Peter. Blessed are you. I build my hopes and my promises upon you. You have the power to truly make a difference just by living into my name. Or put another way, so how am I doing, God? Just fine, kiddo. Just fine. Amen.